0: Gresham College Presents Islam and Christianity is a Clash of Civilizations Inevitable by Keith Ward, D.D., F.B.A., and Gresham Professor of Divinity. La ilaha illa Allah. There is no God but God. That is the defining statement of Islam. And of course, it's pretty defining for Christianity too. In the Gospel of Mark... Chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So you might think that there's a great uh, unanimity between Islam and Christianity. And on that score there is, but of course the history of our world and the history of Europe in particular shows that there have been uh, many historical difficulties between Islam and Christianity, to the extent uh, that Samuel Huntington, in a book which uh, made a lot of publicity a year or two ago, uh, forecasts that perhaps a, cl- a clash of civilizations was inevitable, and two of the clashing civilizations might be that of Islam and that of Christianity. And of course, Europe is the hot spot Uh, with lots of uh, Muslims having uh, entered Europe, and now being part of European society, and there is a question, well, uh, is there going to be, is there, in fact, a clash between these two great faiths? Well, first of all, I want to look at some theological issues about beliefs, then some historical and political issues about why there's been trouble in the past, and then look at the current situation in Europe. So first of all, for the theological issues. Well, it's true that both Christianity and Islam believe in the unity of God. At least uh, if Christians believe the words of Jesus, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, they do. But uh, to speak to some Christians, they, it doesn't sound as though they do believe in the unity of God, and that's a problem. Muslims have the Trinity, three in one. The Koran says, do not call God three. So, straight away, you've got a uh, pretty clear disagreement there. Further, the Quran says it is virtually blasphemous. It is really, uh, really bad, at least, uh, to say that God has a son. Again, Christians would have difficulty with that since they're always talking about the Son of God. And, uh, perhaps finally, and uh, quite importantly, Muslims do not uh, think uh, that Jesus died on the cross uh, or that that death, if it had occurred, would have been very important religiously. Uh, The general Muslim belief is that Jesus ascended into heaven. He didn't actually die. He ascended into heaven, but he was not crucified. At least that's the interpretation of the Quranic text which is most often taken. And there again, of course, Christians would feel, well, this uh, it's not so uh, what we can think about this, because the death of Jesus becomes a saving event for the whole world, a very important religious fact. So there are clearly some big differences. But of course difference doesn't mean hostility. Uh, most of my colleagues in the University of Oxford uh, feel more difficulty about the Incarnation than most Muslims do. It is a very difficult doctrine, and uh, one of my colleagues, Richard Dawkins, thinks it's a very stupid uh, doctrine. So that might seem to be a much worse opposition than anything you could have from Islam. You can see why people think it's difficult. How can you have a God who cannot die, who is timeless, uh, and who is also a man who dies and is in time? You can make it sound like a contradiction. And, of course, we do have a good movement within the uh, Western world called Unitarianism, which uh, is uh, founded on the belief that Jesus wasn't divine, although he was a great human being. And in some ways, if if people who aren't Muslims think of Islam as a bit like Unitarianism, that's quite helpful, really, because we all like Unitarians, don't we? Uh, And uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't think of Muslims as people who just have a lot of difficulty with the Trinity and the Incarnation. So, difference doesn't mean hostility. Difference, in fact, and this is going to be a theme of what my talk tonight, is actually something to be rejoiced in. Difference is actually good. Uh, The Aga Khan certainly believes that. The Aga Khan, who is, of course, a Muslim, said uh, recently that diversity is the essence of Islam. And I'll be producing some quotations from the Quran. Uh, soon, which support that view, that diversity is essential to the nature of Islam. Much more so than, say, in Roman Catholicism. Uh, if you're a Roman Catholic you will know that there's somebody, uh, the Pope, who tells you, on certain matters, what is correct to believe and you have to be united with that belief, or you're supposed to be anyway. I mean, uh, I don't think you are really, but they're supposed to be. But in Islam there is no Pope. Uh, there is nobody who tells people what they have to believe. And so there is no governing authority. And occasionally, some Muslims might say they're governing authorities, but of course they're not. Uh, and uh, it's up to everyone to follow the Quran and to follow the teachings of the Prophet. So there's no structure of dogmatic belief that you have to follow. So in that respect, uh, Islam is actually quite a liberal faith. Now. The word liberal is such a difficult word that perhaps I ought not to use it, except I like it quite a lot. And of course, since uh, Europe is a liberal society on the whole, or is very much influenced by liberalism, uh, I want to stick to it and say that part of uh, what a liberal belief is, or what a liberal society is, is a society which rejoices in diversity, doesn't just accept it, but thinks it is actually a good thing. A theological argument for diversity is that human beings are so fragile in their intellect that they can't possibly work out the truth about things like God, ultimate realities. And even if humans are given a revelation, they can't even work out what it says. The Koran, of course, is written in Arabic, and uh, if you don't read it in Arabic, well, you can't understand it, you're not really allowed Uh, as a scholar to read it in translation and expect to be taken seriously. It's rather unlike the Bible in that respect. Uh, Most Christians think the more translations of the Bible we have, the better. Let's compare them all and see what they're like. But in Islam, no, Arabic is the language of God. That is, the words of the Quran are actually the words of God recited by Muhammad, the prophet. And in that case, well, Arabic is essential, a good knowledge of Arabic is essential. Now the fact is that, of course, the Arabic is extremely difficult to interpret, and Muslim scholars spend all their lives arguing about how to interpret it. So again, argument is built into the faith in a way which it's not necessarily built into Christianity. If you're a Protestant, of course you're familiar with argument, Uh, in fact Protestantism is rather a good analogy to Islam in this respect. Protestants uh, reject the teaching authority of a church. That is, Protestants say, there is nobody like a pope. There's no magisterium of a church which can tell us what to believe. But then Protestants often say, it's all in the Bible. And so we have a secure ground for faith in the Bible. Of course, what happens? Well, every time two Protestants meet, they disagree about what the Bible says. And so you get a million Protestant churches, uh, all different and all claiming to be based on the Bible. Well, I won't take any view on which one of them is right, if any. But it's a peculiar claim to make when so many other people are making the same claim but come to different conclusions. Just think of that peculiarity. that somebody says, here's a certain truth, absolutely, clearly revealed, uh, unfortunately nobody else agrees with you about what it is. Um, well, a few of my friends do, you know, but not very many people. Now, uh, both Protestant Christianity and Islam are rather like that. And Islam can rejoice in that. Protestants find it a bit more difficult, I find, to rejoice in that, because the Quran is a mystery. Being the words of God, it expresses the mind of God. And who can understand the mind of God? And so a traditional Muslim attitude is to say the Koran is so mysterious that actually there's no one interpretation of it which is the correct interpretation. There's no such thing as the correct interpretation. There is the correct text, but how to interpret it? What does it mean? uh, Those are things in which there has always been diversity within Islam itself. So there's a good case for saying that Islam is not a monolithic faith at all. It's a very diverse faith. And that might make us think that maybe it's a mistake to speak about the Muslim world, or even the Muslim community. As though it was one thing, all of whose members agreed. That's clearly not true. It's like talking about the Protestant community. I mean, if you talked about that in England, I don't know who you'd be talking about. The Church of England? I don't think so. Half of them would say they're not Protestant. Um, What else? United Reform Club, possibly. Well, what about the Baptists? It just doesn't make sense to speak about so many different people as forming one community or one world. So diversity is something I think it's very important to stress because it deconstructs the image of one <coughs> monolithic faith battling another monolithic faith when it's not like that at all, as a matter of fact. But let's look a little bit more at this, uh, these difficulties about the Quran denying some central Christian truths, which it certainly does. I want to make it clear, I am not going to say Islam and Christianity are both the same, after all, surprise, surprise, that would be ludicrous. I'm not arguing that. But I am going to say they're more alike than you might think at first. And their differences are differences that you can understand. They're, They're not hostilities, they're genuine difficulties about doctrines and ways of putting them. And these difficulties exist within Christianity and within Islam, as well as between Christianity and Islam. So, let's look at the Trinity. The Quran does say, do not say that God is three. But then, you know, uh, Jesus himself said God is one, and the Trinity is quite a difficult doctrine, everybody would agree. And I suppose it comes down to this, that the Trinity gets started in Christianity by people thinking that Jesus, in some way, is a finite historical being, a person, who expresses the will of God in a unique (coughs) and definitive way. That's a slightly minimal definition, but it's at the heart of the doctrine of incarnation that Jesus somehow represents what God is. He is the earthly image of God, if you like, and this is a definitive statement of the will of God in history. Now, what do Muslims think about the possibility of having a definitive statement of God in history? Well, they have one, and it's the Quran. The Quran is the absolutely definitive image of God in history. It's not a person, uh, uh, it's not a thing, it's not an image, it's not an icon, it is words. But those words express directly the will of God. The words are as difficult to understand as the person of Jesus is. They're both very difficult to understand. They both allow with many different interpretations. But that doesn't stop Christians and Muslims from saying, nevertheless, here is a definitive image. And if we really try to be devoted to this image, we will know more about God. And perhaps, with luck, we'll become more like the God that we seek to know. In fact, surprisingly, in Islam, um, the identity between the world and God, between the finite and the infinite, can be even closer than this. There is one text in the Quran, it's a favourite of many Muslims, and it is in the 28th chapter, and the 88th verse, and the text is this, I'll give it in English of course, everything perishes except the face of God, everything perishes perishes except the face of God. Well, that is typically enigmatic. It's not clear what it says, but let me tell you what Al-Ghazali, one of the uh, greatest classical Muslim writers, theologians, says about it. He says, what what that statement is saying is that there is nothing but God. I quote uh, what he says, there is nothing in existence save Allah, God, alone. Nothing in existence save God alone. And that is a very strong tradition within Islam. Only one tradition, but a very strong one. And in that tradition, people would interpret the phrase with which I began, there is no God but God, as saying, there is only God. Now, you may think that's very strange, because surely, you may think, Islam says God is infinite Apart from the universe, totally sovereign, totally different from anything finite, whereas finite things are totally distinct from God. But actually, that is not quite right. The Quran says God is closer to you than the vein in your neck, and the jugular vein. God is not distant and apart. God is nearer to you than your own veins in your own body. And if the whole universe is the direct expression of the will of God, and if the will of God is identical with the essential being of God, then the whole universe is the direct expression of the will of God. Now, you can't get a closer identification between creation and creator than that, that one is the expression of the will of the other, just as Uh, The body, if it works properly, which is the difficulty, is the direct expression of what we want to do, of human action. The body is the way in which humans act act through the body. So God acts through the world. So in Al-Ghazali and generally within Sufi movements in Islam, there is quite a strong doctrine of the identification of creation and creator. Not only that, but as a matter of fact, particular parts of creation do express the will of God in a more noteworthy or significant or uh, in a way which is more apparent to us. And that's true of the Koran, uh, that although everything expresses God's will in a way for a Muslim, nevertheless the Koran expresses God's way in a definitive way as something manifesting the mind of God. And I think you could say, many Muslims do say, the actual Arabic Koran is an earthly copy of the eternal Quran. And the eternal Quran is the eternal wisdom of God. Now the wisdom of God is exactly <coughs> what Christians mean by the Logos. The Logos is the wisdom of God. So I think it's not ridiculous to say that both Muslims and Christians believe that God is an ultimate spiritual reality whose wisdom is eternal, and whose wisdom, or word, is expressed in particular historical events. For a Muslim, the word of God is expressed in the words of God in the Quran. For Christians, the word of God is expressed in the person of Jesus. So, different focuses of devotion and attention but a similar um wish to actually understand god's wisdom as it is seen by us in particular bits of human history and of course for a christian any theologian would say or at least i would uh, that jesus is the word of god and that expression is synonymous with the expression jesus is the son of god it doesn't mean anything different than that it, it is uh uh, a metaphor, Son of God, and it simply means Word of God or Wisdom of God. So you can see that for a Christian like me, for example, if a Muslim says, "Well, you shouldn't speak of God being incarnate," my response would be, "Well, let's look at this rather carefully. Wouldn't you say that some bits of history express God's will in a definitive way for a Muslim?" The answer is yes, that the Quran does. And then I would say, well, saying Jesus is the son of God for me is just saying that. God's wisdom, eternal, is expressed in a definitive way in the person of Jesus. Now, of course, I'm still not saying they're identical. I'm not saying they all agree. I'm saying the difference is one of emphasis, one of a chosen metaphor, one of an object of devotion. And one of the differences here is one which has been important in Christian history. There's a long thing called the iconoclastic controversy. And the controversy was about whether you could worship God in an image. Now, the reason this arose is, of course, Jesus was a human being, so it looks as though, if you had an image of Jesus, that would be a way of worshipping God. Or, to put it more precisely, you could worship God through this image, because the image was, in fact, a finite representation of the being of God. Well, now, Christians are still split about this. There are still Christians who would not accept the worship of God through icons. But as a matter of fact, the seventh ecumenical council of uh, the undivided church uh, did say that icons were legitimate means of worshipping God. But you don't worship the icon, you worship God as expressed or, or, or the sense as expressing the being of God through the icon. So there are differences in how people choose to be devoted to God. Some people find that the use of icons is helpful, the use of images, that is visual images, that is helpful. Other people, many Protestants, virtually all Muslims, say it's not helpful to worship God in that way. Nevertheless, you can worship God through some finite medium, namely words. So instead of a visual image, you have an oral image. You have the words themselves. And what are words but oral icons? They are images of the mind of God expressed in finite form for human understanding. So again, I think if one can examine these things closely and carefully and sensitively, you can say, well, people do differ in the way in which they feel it's right to worship God, but at least we can see that's what they're trying to do, worship God in different ways. And it would be quite wrong to say Christians differ from Muslims, because Muslims don't like icons, and all Christians do, when loads of Christians don't like icons at all and wouldn't have them quite interesting in my own church, the Church of England, that icons have come to be quite prevalent in Anglican churches. But I think a hundred years ago, you could <laughs> see one. It had been very rare. And that's just a way in which people can come to see that the worship of God might be a little bit broader. There might be many paths to God, not just the one that they personally prefer. <laughs> so that's about incarnation. And of course, Trinity is bound up with that. Um, I think responsible theologians do not say there are three gods. Um, That is not a possibility for a Christian. You would say, well, there are three aspects of the being of God. And again, should a Muslim have much trouble with that? I don't think so, because you can think of God as transcendent creator. You can think of God as imminent in the whole world. And you can think of God as represented in one finite place. Again, you're not going to get agreement. I'm not arguing for agreement. I'm saying there is a spiritual affinity, a difference, but an affinity, a diversity within a unity of seeking to worship God in an appropriate way. And perhaps uh, the mature view would be saying we can accept these different ways. And I can see, I can see as a Christian that many people find great difficulty with the thought that Jesus was an incarnation of God. And I can see this is an honest difficulty. And that I'm not surprised, really, that people can conscientiously reject this. Now, do I think it's a good thing? Do I, as a Christian, think it's a good thing for people to reject the incarnation? Well, I've thought about this um, for about 60 years, almost. And I would say, yes, (coughs) it is a good thing. It's hard to say that, because you think, surely, it would be better if people all agreed But would it really? How boring life would be if we all agreed. And I said, well, God is like this. And you said, I agree. I said, oh, well. And furthermore, I can tell you that God does this. And you said, yes, that's true. That's a very boring sort of state of affairs. And it does not advance human knowledge. I think one of the great insights of the 18th century European enlightenment was that disagreement drives new knowledge. And you have to have disagreement You have to have Richard Dawkins, even, to get a different view and a clearer view of what you yourself are saying, and why it offends people, and what you might do about it, and does it matter? Uh, So you have to think about these things, and allowing (laughs) criticism allows you to do it. So again, the argument, which I think derives, historically, mostly from John Stuart Mill, as it happens in the the British tradition, anyway, uh, is that uh, if you want to know the truth, (laughs) The best way is to allow the strongest possible criticism. And in that way, you will burn away the chaff, hopefully, and come to find out what is really important and true about what you think. The critical method of inquiry. And I think that method is as valid in religion as it is anywhere else. And I'd want to say it's part of the Christian and the Muslim traditions. in the golden age of Islam, uh, in the, uh, before the 14th century, the 14th Christian century, uh, the great philosophers of Islam were certainly uh, critical, that is exploratory, creative, in their interpretations of the ways of God and the relation of God to human beings. That's true uh, in uh, recent times too, and there are certainly very creative Muslim thinkers who are looking at different ways of expressing what God is. So my point here is that uh, we shouldn't say, Muslims say, God is not free, so the Trinity is ridiculous, uh, and God has no son, so the incarnation is blasphemous. Uh, Rather, we should look at these doctrines and inspect them rather more carefully and see the nuance in what they're saying, that here is the wisdom of God uh, embodied in certain finite forms, some of which appeal to some traditions and some of which appeal to others. So my point there was taking Al Ghazali as my lead, that there's a strong wisdom tradition of saying that actually the universe is the direct expression of the will of God. Parts of the universe are particularly normative decisive expressions of the will of God for human beings. They're still difficult to understand. They still leave many possibilities of interpretation. But they become canonical. They become a rule for thinking about God within this tradition. Now, that leaves the question, well, does Islam think of itself as the only tradition? And I would say they're absolutely not. There is no question of this at all. And uh, I will uh, give you some quotations from the Quran just to show that this is true. They're very well known uh, quotations, I think, so forgive me if you know them well. But in the Quran, let's uh, take as a start this statement from the 42nd chapter and the 15th verse. God, and these remember, these are the words of God recited by the prophet on a particular occasion. God is our Lord, and your Lord, talking to Christians and Jews, basically. God is our Lord and your Lord. For us, our deeds, and for you, your deeds. There is no contention, no contention between us and you. God will bring us together, and to him is our final goal. That's a pretty decisive statement. There's no contention. There are different paths, but there isn't contention. Again, from the 29th chapter of the Quran, dispute not with the people of the book. Again, that's mainly Jews and Christians, but let's say devout religious believers of all sorts. Dispute dispute not with the people of the book, but say, we believe in the revelation that has come down to us and in that which has come to you. Our God and your God is one And it is to him that we bow. Now, again, it would be very difficult to read that statement and then say that Islam is supposed to be the only religion that exists in the world. Because what the Prophet said, what God said through the Prophet, is do not dispute with these people who hold different views because we make no difference between them. Now, of course, uh, a good Muslim would say, but Islam is a superior way. But you'd expect that. You know, everybody, everybody, all of us think that our view is superior to everybody else's, don't we? Really? Otherwise we'd change it, wouldn't we? I mean, if we met somebody and said, your view is superior to mine, immediately that would be our view, and so we'd still be superior. You can't really avoid that. <laughs> so it's a very unfair jive that people who think that what they think is truer than what other people think are arrogant. It's the way you say it is arrogant or not but you can't help thinking that what you believe, really, is correct in the end. And what you have to say about this, I suppose, is, well, I agree that I'm not, you know, the most intelligent person in the world, I don't know more than anybody else in the world, so I could be wrong. So that's the humility bit. But then, I'm not wrong, really. (laughs) Or I don't think that I'm wrong, and I've just got to stand by what I believe. Now, I think religion could do a bit of humility, Are saying, well, you know, we can't be absolutely theoretically certain about this, but we have to stand by our own views and say, well, we think they're true. And again, that's a a part at which diversity could be a good thing, to see that actually there are different conscientious views. There are many views which aren't conscientious, of course, and that is, those are views which arise from evil and from the will to power and the desire for wealth and those are not the things that I'm talking about now, but that even when people are really trying to understand the ways of God, they're going to disagree, and such disagreement is going to be inevitable. A final quotation on this topic from the Quran, from the 18th chapter, the people of the book, again, mostly Christians and Jews, have been commanded no more than this, to worship God, offering him sincere devotion to establish regular prayer, and to practice regular charity. And that is religion, right, and straight. So, if you take these texts seriously, Islam is, in fact, a very tolerant religion. It's a bit like looking at the Seven on the Mount and saying, if Christians really believed that, uh, this would be uh, a very pacifist, Uh, a very reconciliatory, a very tolerant religion. It's the same with the Quran. If you really believed it, uh, you're bound to exercise tolerance. What uh, accounts for the intolerance is something else, and to that I will now turn. So the first part of my talk was about the religion itself. What I've said is, well, yes, of course there are differences, but actually there are lots of differences between Christians and lots of differences between Muslims and there's no such thing as Islam which just disagrees with the whole of Christianity. (coughs) There are lots of Muslims with whom I agree more than I do with some of my Christian colleagues. And I think many of us would feel that too, and all you have to do to make sure it's true is talk to lots of Muslims and Christians and you soon find out that some of them you really have nothing much in common with of your own alleged faith, uh, whereas people of an alleged alien faith you have much more in common with. So that's an important uh, factor to bear in mind. But I want to pass on now to talk about the history, the very sad history really, of Christianity and Islam in Europe or around the boundaries of Europe. And I think it's a history of misinterpretation, of misunderstanding and of the erection of stereotypes of the other, which aren't really quite true. And the stereotype is that from Europe's point of view, Europe is Christendom. So here you've got a Christian sort of uh, entity, Europe, being attacked or threatened by Islam, the siege of Vienna, Spain, (laughs) lots of instances of Islam uh, attacking, threatening to attack Europe. So you get Islam versus Christianity. From the Muslim point of view, the stereotype is the West, mostly Europe, started the Crusades, which were attacks upon Islam. So again, you get a stereotype of the aggressive Christian world attacking the Muslim world. Again, the monolithic view, you've got a Christian world and a Muslim world. Now, you need to look at this history rather carefully. Again, just in a little bit more detail, with a little bit more sensitivity to see what it looks like, really. And what has gone wrong with both Christianity and Islam is that they have both become, or they have both been, imperial religions, religions of empire. In the Christian case, it was quite clear that Christianity became the established religion of the Roman Empire. That empire was split into two parts, the Byzantine Empire centered on Constantinople, and the Western Roman Empire centered on Rome. <coughs> both those empires collapsed, the Western Roman Empire collapsed rather quickly. The Byzantines went on until 1453, when Constantinople <coughs> was sacked by the Ottoman Turks. Well, what you to think of is, once Christianity had become the established religion of the Roman Empire, was it changed for the better? I think my verdict would be, well, I think the Roman Empire was changed for the better, but Christianity was definitely changed for the worse. And Christianity was contaminated by imperialism. When Islamic forces uh, attacked and ultimately overcame the Byzantine Empire, we have to remember that Empire was the Roman Empire. It was a brutal, militaristic, oppressive force, which controlled its people by armed force. It was hated by most of the people whom it ruled. So it wasn't true that all the Byzantines, all the members of the Byzantine Empire, were saying, oh dear, this is terrible, they're attacking our lovely Christian empire. They were saying, for goodness sake, free us from the Byzantine emperors who are torturing us by the thousands and causing all sorts of uh, trouble. Uh, We want to be liberated. So a Muslim would see the attack upon the Byzantine Empire partly as self-defense, pre-emptive attack, I think we're familiar with that doctrine, and partly as uh, a liberation of oppressed people from a militaristic empire. You have to see that's how it is to be seen. I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that's how Muslims see it, and it's certainly a reasonable point of view Would we really want to be parts of the Roman Empire, or anything like it? I think not, because we've had an empire of our own, haven't we? That was uh, ambiguous, but of course, much better than the Roman Empire. But the Romans, uh, well, they were definitely brutal and militaristic, and we were glad to be rid of them. So were the Byzantines. And if the Muslims helped them to do it, all the better. So Christianity was partly perverted, by its association with a brutal militaristic empire, partly perverted by being believed by barbarians, like us, like most of us anyway. And the barbarians are the cold, white people who live on origins and don't have any culture. And during the golden age of Islam, they were living in the dark ages. And they consisted of lots of tribes who had assimilated Christianity to a very small degree, and still actually translated the Christian saints into Norwegian warriors. Vikings, Germans, barbarians, English, not the Welsh, they were okay. But uh, lots of people uh, would just use Christian imagery to, for their own militaristic purposes. Again, a perversion, but what can you do? So when you speak about Christian Europe, you've got to be very careful What Europe are we thinking of? Roman imperial Europe or its past echoes? Barbarian Europe or its past tribal feuds? Just remember that Europe actually has destroyed more human lives than any other people in history. We managed to have two world wars, not with Islam, not with Hinduism, not with Buddhism, but with each other. Christians and Christians, or perhaps not Christians, I don't know what they were, but the First World War and the Second World War, they were not wars of religion at all, but they were definitely bloody conflicts which killed millions of people. Um, And that's Christian Europe? I don't think so. So my suggestion here is to associate and identify Christianity with Europe is a very ambiguous thing to do. And I think we need to make a distinction between what uh, the Christian faith may say and the various uh, historical enmities which have characterized the very bloody history of Europe. Now, it's the same with Islam. Islam was successful throughout the world because all the barbarians who attacked it converted to Islam, whether for convenience or for some other reason they did. So the Berbers in Morocco who then attacked Spain and founded Al-Andalus, the uh, Persian Empire and the Mughal Empire in India, and the Ottoman Turks, they were people who were aggressive imperialists, and they converted to Islam. But just as in the European case, you have to say, well, was this any longer Islam as a religion? Or was it a politicized version of Islam, which was used as a cloak for imperialism to make bad acts seem morally legitimate? So the same ambiguity exists in Islam and in Christianity. And maybe that's why we shouldn't think of them as monolithic, because it was when they got mixed up with these particular cultures uh, that they began to form imperial alliances. Historically, yes, there was conflict between the Ottoman Empire and various different empires in Europe. There was that conflict. But it wasn't primarily a religious conflict at all. It was the same sort of conflict that existed between Germany and the rest of Europe uh, in the Second World War and the First World War, a nationalistic uh, war of pride and desire for the extension of territory. Now, you can't separate religion from its cultural context. But you can say that religion changes according to its cultural context. And that past history, the tragic history of enmity between Ottoman Islamic empires and European empires of various sorts, all competing with one another, that history is finished. It's over. It's a terrible mistake to think that somehow it still exists. Its echoes are still, unfortunately, with us. And when people talk as though the crusades had happened yesterday, uh, that is a a most unfortunate recurrence of of, uh, conflicts, which have ceased to exist for centuries. And it would be quite wrong to resurrect that to breed new, modern fears. So what is the situation as we move nearer into the 20th century and now to our own? Well, of course, the dominant fact that's happened in Europe is, I suppose, moving back to the 18th century, the Enlightenment. This is the, the single greatest movement, I think, in the whole of European history. It bred the American and the French revolutions. It was a revolutionary period, the Enlightenment. It can be defined in many ways. And the Enlightenment was very different in different countries. The Scottish Enlightenment was very unlike the French Enlightenment. And both were very unlike the German Enlightenment. So there are different sorts of Enlightenment philosophy. But on the whole, what the Enlightenment did was to subject old political, monarchical absolutism to criticism. So there were three things. Let me. This is going to be rather blunt and crude, but let me suggest there were three things that the Enlightenment was primarily concerned with criticizing. One was monarchical absolutism, the power, the hereditary power of kings, and that was brought to criticism because of the gross injustice. And this was particularly true in France of the Ancien Régime. So there was that political criticism, the result of which was, on the whole, the replacement of absolutist monarchies by parliamentary or, or democratic systems of one sort or another. The second great object of criticism was uh, the rise of scientific method. And the person who was criticized was Aristotle. One of the great uh, triumphs of uh, the European mind has been uh, actually the overcoming of the influence of the greatest of all Greeks, apart from Plato. And Aristotle, of course, had been a wonderful scientist for his age, for his age, but that was a long time ago, and almost everything he said was incorrect. Everything he said about science, that was, was incorrect. So his authority had to be criticized, had to be questioned. And of course, we all know about the Galileo controversy, which was, again, not about religion. It was about whether Aristotle was right in everything he said, or whether, in fact, looking through telescopes was a better way of finding out what the universe was like. That revolution in thought was brought about to give rise to science, discovery of truth by close observation and experiment, another triumph of the Enlightenment. The third, though perhaps chronologically it was the first, is the criticism of the Church. And of course, the Protestant uh, Reformation was the beginning of that criticism, and Protestants had to criticize the Church in order to be Protestants. What they criticized was the corruption of the Church. They didn't originally, any of them really, want to leave the Catholic Church, but that was forced upon them, I think, by history. But they did feel that they had the right to criticize allegedly authoritative pronouncements on religion, whoever made them. Now, if you think about that for a minute, you see that that principle applies to them, to Calvin and Luther and Spingley and the rest, as well as to the pope. So once you say, I claim the right to criticize anything that anybody says about religion, uh, well, they're going to come in for some criticism. And so Protestantism inevitably gives rise to criticism of Protestantism. And that is quite right. Uh, And that's why criticism is a good thing, because it allows people to freely investigate the evidence or the reasons that can be given for believing certain things to be the case. So there, I would say, are the three main advances, intellectual advances, of the Enlightenment. Uh, The growth of democracy by criticism of the old absolutist regimes, the growth of science by criticism of the authoritarian science of Aristotle, and the growth of critical religion, of liberal religion, in which I would certainly now include Roman Catholicism, but it was originally Protestant, the growth of critical religion by feeling free to criticize allegedly authoritative pronouncements by the pope. So those events in European history have given rise to a society which is liberal in a a quite definite sense. Liberal in the sense of allowing criticism, of encouraging scientific investigation, and of espousing a democratic form of government. Now that's not just a European thing, but it did happen in Europe. Uh, that enlightenment, being a European phenomenon, has given rise to a culture which has changed considerably, especially in the last hundred years. I can make uh, the difference quite apparent by just quoting two Christian sources. Uh, one source is the, uh, by now I think, infamous uh, papal pronouncement of the Syllabus of Errors by Pope Pius IX in 1864, in which he said that it was not the case. He condemned the opinion that anyone was free to practice their own religion. He condemned the opinion that non-Catholic churches had a right to exist in any country in the world, which is rather a remarkable thing to have said. And he condemned the opinion that he should be in any sense modern or liberal. 1864, long time ago, but there you are, it was said. In the 1960s, in the Second Vatican Council, um, the uh, Catholic Church said and published the statement that the human person has a right to religious freedom. So in 100 years, the Catholic Church completely changed its mind. Why? I think because the theologians of the Catholic Church came to see that the Enlightenment wasn't an anti-religious movement, at all it was a movement which had seen that what was called authority was actually association with empire and privilege and a culture which was not a Christian culture at all basically and that to go back to the Christian gospel was to ask for the right of human beings to be free in the expression of their religious opinions and the right of every human person to cultivate the talents that God had given them to the greatest extent, not repressed by absolutist rulers. So it wasn't long before Christians could find theological justifications for liberal attitudes, post-enlightenment attitudes. But Christians didn't on the whole take the lead in this. The interplay between the culture and the religion is a very delicate one. And so this brings me to the present day, and the place of Muslims entering into, there have always been some Muslims in European society, but entering as a a major social force into European society. Well, Muslims are entering into a culture which has only very recently been liberalized. Islam has a liberal past. In Spain, for example, in ancient Muslim Spain, The Muslims were much more tolerant of Jews than were Christians, who threw the Jews out in 1492, completely uh, threw them out of Spain altogether. And the Muslim philosophers of that time were certainly critical and liberal. And when in Islam there is, in fact, uh, a very strong basis for a doctrine of human rights, because it is the duty of every human being to be merciful and compassionate to practice charity, and it's a simple logical argument that if that's the duty of every human being then it is a right of human beings to receive that treatment. So a basis for human rights does strongly exist in Islam. So what I want to suggest is there is not going to be a clash between Islam and Christianity because there are so many clashes within Christianity anyway that it won't be noticeable. (laughs) And there are so many clashes between Islam as well that they haven't got time to bother about clashing with Christians. So from a religious point of view, there are not two monolithic entities which are going to be at odds with one another. The fact is there are thousands of different varieties of Christians and Muslims and they have various approaches. The big cultural clash in Europe is between paternalism and liberalism, and by that I mean it's between views which say that particular morally, um, allegedly morally enforcing laws should be made by the state. I think of a few of them, but I won't go into that against the liberal view that the primary function of law is simply to prevent the causation of harm to others, but to extend the freedom of choice as much as is possible, consistent with justice. Now, that's a rather complicated affair, and I don't pretend there's any formula for bringing it about. But that is not a religious conflict. It's a conflict between how you think the law should be applied. Probably a great many Muslims in Europe come from societies, have originally, their parents, their grandparents, have come from societies which were paternalistic into a society which is liberal. And doing that makes liberalism look like uh, a a wishy-washy view without any moral standards at all. But of course, liberalism in fact has a very strong moral standard that human freedom is something that is to be cherished and human diversity is something to be encouraged, and human creativity is one of the greatest values that there are. I think that both Islam and Christianity can add to this humanistic, liberal society a moral depth and seriousness, an element of moral transcendence that says this morality of personal self-realization is rooted in the nature of creation itself, because God creates a God who is merciful and compassionate, Creates in order that all creatures might reach their fulfillment. And such a view will give to a humanistic philosophy uh, a depth, I think, that just isn't present if you think that human beings, well, in the end, are just accidents of a random process in the universe. I don't want to condemn that view morally at all. I just want to say it seems to me quite clear that a stronger moral basis for humanistic moral good of it is to be found both in Islam and Christianity. So my conclusion is, of course, there are dangers in uh, all human institutions and religious institutions, among others. And of course, things can go terribly wrong, and we must guard against that. But the situation in Europe is actually one which provides new, positive, creative opportunities for both Christianity and Islam to continue to discover their humanistic basis in a common devotion to a God who wills the fulfillment of all human beings. And if Islam and Christianity bear that first in mind, then they will become colleagues in what is the true jihad, the true striving in the way of God, which is a striving for human fulfillment and justice for everyone. everyone. (laughs) For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.